Hi, my name is Gary Cook, and welcome to this podcast with Senior Times. In my first series of podcasts, I've been lucky enough to interview some of Ireland's greatest sports people. But today, I will be speaking to perhaps the greatest ever. Fiercely competitive, relentlessly driven, a gold medal winner in the Olympic Games at just 21 years of age, yet a modest, self-effacing and highly personable man. You could say he is a bit of an enigma of Irish sport. It is my great pleasure to welcome Ronnie Delaney. Ronnie, how are you? Good morning. How are you, Gary? A pleasure to hear from you. Uh, and nice to talk to you. And thanks very much for doing this, Ronnie. Uh, I know you've just had your first COVID jab. Is, isn't that correct? Yeah, I had it yesterday. And uh, it was covered by the Irish Times. My local practice, my local doctor has looked after for my years, Paul Cosgrave. And it was a nice piece in the, in the Times this morning. Reading the article, you know, you mentioned that one of the, the 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 awful things about COVID was that you weren't able to hug anyone. Nobody can. It's a it's a it's a nice sentiment, isn't it? But that's that's one of the things we miss. You know, I, I think society is full of love, and families are full of love, and I I believe in the concept of love and loving your friends, and I I'm tactile myself, so. I don't go around hugging everyone, but it's nice to get a hug from a little granddaughter, a beautiful granddaughter, a grandson. This sort of contact is is very beautiful thing. And unfortunately, and properly, uh, that sort of physical contact has been advised against. But for example, I had a call from one of my grandchildren in New York yesterday, Robert, so there's a great sense of connection, a great sense of family, and a great sense of love. The fact that not alone my children, but their children, my grandchildren, they all ring you and they're all caring for you and they're all saying, hey, Papa, how'd you get on with the job yesterday? <laughs> I have to disappoint them and say it didn't hurt. <laughs> Well, obviously, family is hugely, hugely important uh, to you, Ronnie. I know you pref- uh, you're married to to, to Joan, and uh, you've been married, I think, for nearly sixty four years at this point, uh, and uh, you've got four children and and, and fourteen grandchildren. Uh, can I ask you just a little bit about your own uh, childhood, uh, Ronnie? You were, uh, I know, you were born in Arklow and you lived. Uh, in Sandymount, uh, it seemed to be a very happy childhood and a very active one. What was life like as a boy in the 1940s? Oh, it was, it was, uh, each new day was an, a new adventure. Like, your memory is brilliant. As, uh, I'm blessed with a great memory. So I have memory of my first Holy Communion and leaving my home and St. John's Road and going into Haddington Road to make my, my communion. And I particularly remember that because the nun gave us all sweets. And one of the horrible things I had to do at six or seven years of age was share my sweets. So my life in Sandy Mount was one day of joy after another. I was reflecting on it last night and I was trying to think of a word, the sort of things we did you know, I grew up in an environment of sport. We Claremont Lawn Tennis Club behind us, Railway Union, Monkstown, London Bridge Road, Lansdowne Road, the sea. We're surrounded by all of these beautiful, beautiful amenities. 
But one of the things that I reflected on last night, that because of the war, and remember, I was born in 35, so I was 8, 9, 10 during war years. And I remember playing what we called commandos. And I should have got a, a, a signal out of this because I was the one who always did the endurance thing for the commandos. So if we were down in railway union, so many times you could run around the, the park or the fields, those beautiful fields, and the cricket fields, the hockey fields, the rugby pitch. Uh, I think there's a soccer pitch as well, combination rugby and so on. And the experience all of that, that, that was wonderful game playing. But then sports was central to my growing up because living beside Claremont, I played tennis. Living beside Railway, I played hockey and cricket. Going to a school, I played my school sports, so that included Gaelic. And I, again, tennis, I played tennis for my school and I played cricket for my school. I, I did this immense amount of physical activity, but it was all integrated in part of your life. It wasn't as if you were training. I mean, one thing I forgot to mention was obviously athletics. So my brother Joe is the greatest schoolboy athlete Ireland ever had, Joe Delaney. People can look him up if they wish. He was Irish schoolboy champion, primary schools, intermediate senior schools, and Irish champion. And he was a high jumper and long jumper. And he could run sprints. He could run 400 meters. I remember going to sports and I'd carry all his prizes home. So I had this influence, if you like, latent influence of my brother. And I had then the pleasure of being a member of Crusaders Athletic Club. And in this club, I encountered wonderful people, people like Brendan Hennessy was the coach. And he, he taught you to love athletics. And of course, I had the immediate talent. I wasn't great, but I was good. I could win the Leinster Colleges, the All-Ireland Colleges. But when I was 18, I was invited to represent the AAUE against the Northern Ireland Trias in a meet in uh, College Park. And I ran against the Irish champion. And of course, at 18 years of age, I happened to win the race. But more important, I ran sub two minutes. I think it was the first Irish schoolboy ever to run sub, sub two minutes. And then I knew I had talent. Then I knew, hey, Ronnie, you better wake up. This this is a gift. You've got to explore that. So I gave up all my other sports and I started training exclusively for athletics. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, Remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway, keeping Ireland connected. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age.
Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. See, it's interesting that you say that you weren't necessarily, you know, the most uh, gifted uh, junior sports person in the country, but you must have had an incredible sense of, of, of competitiveness and the will to win. Uh, when was that evident in you? Yeah, well, that was always there. I liked to win. Uh, I wasn't arrogant about winning. Uh, I, I, but I saw it as the objective of the exercise of running. The exercise was to get across the line in first place. And I never, I never compromised on that. And to this day, I still feel the race is of the essence. It's not the great time runs, the pace runs. It's the championship runs. When you get into the Olympics, you get into the Europeans, you get into the British championship, American championship, and the objective is to win. And the, the person who comes away with the title is not the greatest world record holder. It's the guy who's the greatest mm. racer on that day. So I think the race is still of the essence. And if I don't try and advise any of the contemporary athletes, but if, if I was to talk to them and they want to talk deeply to me, I would be saying that, hey, listen, it's about racing. It's about winning. It's about getting over that line first. Ronnie, can I just touch on some of your early influences. You mentioned Brennan Hennessy there, who who I know uh, Crusaders taught you uh, about the idea of, of fun and enjoying athletics. Uh, and Jack Sweeney as well. He had an interesting thing to say. Jack was, if you like, a technically a probably the first great athletic coach we ever had in Ireland. He was a man of incredible intellect himself. He taught honorary maths in, in CUS, my school. But he also was that, that coach, the athletic coach. So he was the one who who determined what event I'd run, so the 800 metres. He'd be the one who say, yeah, you can have a go at the 400 metres or the 440 yards as well. But he taught me one thing that stood with me throughout my career. And going back to this thing, this thesis of Ronnie Delaney, the racer, he explained to me there was only one positive move you could make in a race, one strike. And you had to make that strike and let it, um, when I say a strike, you had to pass the other runners if there were two or three in front of you. You had to make a burst for the front. And I burst for the front and you had to sustain that burst and get over the line in first. You didn't get a chance to repeat that surprise, that element of uh, tactical skill. So even in the Olympics, if you review the race, you'll see that I was very patient going down the back stretch. In fact, I was very patient throughout the race. But I made that one significant strike. And that was Jack Sweeney's gift to me. He taught me that. And that was something I practiced. I practiced it indoors in America where I ran for five years without losing a race. And I used to make that strike. Sometimes I could make it early if it was a slow race. In a fast race, you had to make that strike 50 yards from the finish. They had to surprise and shock the poor devil in front of you by mm. 
going by. And, and many of the guys I passed at that stage, they reflect on the races. Someone like Tom Murphy in Manhattan, a great half miler. I beat him indoors. And he, to this day, he said, Ronnie, I wonder if I'd gone earlier, would I have beaten you? <laughs> I say nothing. I say nothing. Well, this is uh, one of the things about, you know, David Coleman, the great commentator. Uh, I remember in some of the impressions of him, uh, they always, always used to say, oh, he's gone too soon. He's gone too soon. And this issue in, in, in racing of going too soon seems to be the point at which you lose a, a race. I mean, it comes down to one moment. How do you mentally kind of prepare for that, Ronnie? Yeah, well, see, Coleman wasn't necessarily right. He didn't go too soon. He went... Tactically, um, it's not the soonness, it's the fact that the strategy of going when he go, went didn't enable him to win. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't use the term he went too soon. Tell me about the decision to leave Ireland as a young man, uh, about going against your parents' wishes and about heading off to Villanova University at Pennsylvania for your sports scholarship. Yeah, well, they they were huge decisions. Uh, in in my book, uh, I refer to my ability to take these critical decisions. And one of the critical ones was to leave the cadet school in the Curra. I'd won the cadetship, which was very valuable in terms of life and life expectancy and career, a job, uh, becoming an officer and possibly a gentleman. Uh, but I, I left the cadets because I couldn't accommodate this new Ronnie Delaney who wanted to train for athletics and I wasn't able to do the two in the cadet school. And I had this gift, I had this gift of self-belief, I had this gift of wanting to race, I had this gift of wanting to win. I had this training application and I, I had courage I'd courage, I mean, because you need courage to uh, run of your best. Now, when you're, when you're over-raced, which I used to be in the middle of the summers, no matter what you did, you weren't going to beat someone like Herb Elliott. But in the Olympics, uh, other than uh, 1960 when I was injured, in the Olympics, if you were extremely fit and extremely well, you could believe in yourself and you could believe that you could win. And what is remarkable, I suppose, is that I was only 21 when I won the Olympic Games. I don't mean to be boastful or arrogant or anything like that, Gary. You know me. Oh, indeed. I don't think you are boastful or arrogant. You're not boastful or arrogant at all, Ronnie. Uh, what you achieved was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Can I ask you about your parents' uh, reaction to to your decision to become a professional athlete, you know, coming from Sandy Mount at that time, your dad is a, works in the civil service, you good job, uh, and boys like you didn't really do that kind of stuff, yet you did. What was their reaction to, to that and to going to Villanova? My parents were extraordinarily supportive. Of course, they had the experience of my brother Joe being such a great athlete. So for me to be, that was taken for granted that they supported everything I did. I they supported, they wouldn't have been pleased, my dad wouldn't have been pleased with my leaving the cadets. Uh, but he, they supported me in getting to America and finding the money to pay for the airfare to America. They supported all of my career, but they were supportive in an absolute sense in that my father bought me the runners, bought me the track shoes. Uh, I think he even bought me, a, later he bought me a, a track suit 
where I used to go to the initial championships in 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 my longers from cricket. <laughs> so they're different times, aren't they, Gary? But I had the wonderful support of my of my parents. Uh, my mother was a great, most affectionate, loving mother. My father was a bit of a disciplinarian, nonetheless very caring and very responsive. I mean, it wasn't very easy for him to buy the cricket bat, the hockey stick. And I, I say to young people out there today, remember what the input of your parents into furthering your career. It's so important. You went to Villanova University. Uh, so two questions here. Why Villanova? And uh, what about uh, Jumbo Elliott, the great legendary coach? Uh, how did he shape your career? Uh the trailblazers for Villanova were John Joe Barry, Jimmy Reard, and Common Clancy. They were athletes of the 48 Olympics. They met a guy called George Guidan, a guy called Browning Ross from Villanova at the London Olympics. They all ended up on scholarship. So they, if you like, were the trailblazers. Now, why did I pick Villanova? Uh, I picked Villanova because I met a guy called Fred Dwyer, who was the American mile champion in Dublin. He told me about Villanova. He told me about the coach. So it was a very easy decision. The familiarity of the Irish having been there, a very good university academically. I suppose uh, not that I would have had a problem with going to uh, other than a Catholic university. It was a Catholic university. And I, I, I was Catholic, reared Catholic, educated Catholic. So that was another factor. And the coach was a factor. But as to where Villanova was <laughs> or what it would be like there, I hadn't a clue. In fact, my first trip to America, I arrived at the airport. There's no um, emails like that then. And I'm looking around. Where, how do I get down to Philadelphia? Next thing I see a guy with... V for Villanova on his chest and it was Jim Moran, the captain of the track team, he'd come up from Villanova to collect me and bring me safely to Villanova and I remember I I, meant, I used the anthem of Villanova that for the first time ever I said V for Villanova it goes on to say V for victory, V for the blue, blue and white and it says, fight, fight, fight. So there's, there's a, an answer now for everyone out there. <laughs> okay, and Jumbo Elliott, the great, the great coach, um, I'm, I'm struck by a lot of... Jumbo was primarily a insightful manager. He was a millionaire by his own right. He was an elite, elite athlete. He would have gone to the Olympics, I'm sure, but he gave up athletics when he was 20 because he needed to get work. He was a scratch golfer, and he wasn't one of these guys who was absolutely imperious in in his diktats about how you should train. He, he listened to you. He learned from you. He learned from me about the interval training method, and he applied that with me. So, But he was more a manager. He managed your fitness. He managed your programming of events. He, he, for example, if I had went out to do a hard session later when I was the elite athlete and winning all these different things, he would, he would, uh, he'd ask me to do a particular workout, and I'd say, "Hey, Jumbo, I'm, I'm tired today. I was studying last night. Okay, we'll do a different workout, but Ron, I want you to come on. No, don't study too late tomorrow night. 
want you to come and we do hard work work out tomorrow. So he was like that. He was managing you. And he was a man, a maker of men, a maker of milers. He made Eamon Coughlin. He made all the great athletes of my era, uh, people who went to Villanova, uh, the, the Marcus Sullivan, all of these great, great Irish, Irish um, milers and um, Sonia Sullivan, coincidentally, went to Villanova as well. But Jumbo made us all, and he managed us. He managed us to be, he taught us to be uh, neat and tidy, so hair cutting was important. I used to let my hair grow where he'd be given out to me, and I'd, I'd always get a few bucks off him to get a haircut. So there you go. But he, he taught us about neatness and tidiness and modesty, and and he exposed us to... The communication, like I remember going to a lot of breakfasts and uh, a lot of city things, a lot of local parish things, and you would have to speak. So he, he taught you how to public speak. So he, he not alone was a great coach, great motivator, but he was also a great maker of men. He made you into what you were. Uh, tell us about the about the build up to the Olympics, about the getting there, uh, and of course that famous Saturday night in Melbourne. I knew I was very fit. I knew the training sessions I was doing were capable of me running faster than ever run before in my, my, my life, and I was a four minute miler. So I went down to the Olympics, knowing I was phenomenally fit, and mentally I was quite determined. I, I knew now I could win the Olympics and of course my philosophy which we go back to the racing I didn't go into the Olympics to be second or third. Elliot would often ask me who who won the Olympics in Berlin in 1936 and I'd tell him who was second. I said I don't know. So who won <laughs> in t- any year he'd pick uh, 32 I'd know the winner. I wouldn't know the second. And he'd say Ronnie, the only place you're going to be remembered ultimately is if you're first. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Can I ask you about the race itself, uh, Ronnie? I mean, it was a brilliant, brilliant race. Uh, it worked absolutely brilliant for you. Uh, one moment in your career, uh, seizing the day. It must have been an incredibly nerve-wracking experience going into into the actual... It's not really nerve-wracking. Uh, what's nerve-wracking is the 24 hours beforehand, trying to sleep the night, nerve-wracking the five or six hours before the race. And then suddenly you have to switch off the nerves and you have to switch into this concentration 
mode. You have to switch into this calculating mode. I now have to race and you have to be coldly analytical about what you're going to do. So I would be ashen faced with with uh, concern about what I had to do, but determined to get ahead and do it. So you you sort of were you went onto the racetrack determined to carry out your race plan. My race plan was a combination of watching what was happening and then making this one decisive move when I was in a position to do so. So the race itself, uh, the start, I think it was a false start. I have no memory of a false start. It's not amazing. And I've all these other memories. I was probably so concentrated. My brother, Paddy, often used to say to me, hey, Ronnie, I said hello to you at Santry, and he never even said hello. I said, I wouldn't see my... I wouldn't see my brother because I'd be so focused and so concentrated. So when I don't remember the false start. I do remember, because I can see it in film, the start, and I took off to the midfield. I was quite safe. I was sort of outside in a 12-man field, very comfortable, settled in after about 300 metres into the back of the field alongside Nielsen of Denmark, I think it's 1500 meter world record holder, Landy the world mile record holder, and Ritzenheim of Germany. So we're, we're at the back, but the interesting thing is the gap from first to set, to, from first to back is about 10 meters, that's all. And I'm very comfortable back there, I'm very relaxed. I, I'm running like as if I'm the most beautiful runner in the world. I was probably one of the uglier runners in the world uh, in style, <laughs> but in my mind, I was the most beautiful runner in the world. I was using no energy. I was floating at the back of the field alongside. I wouldn't have been particularly conscious who was with me. I'd have been conscious of the shape of the field. And the shape that shape stayed there. One dramatic moment at about the half-mile stage, or the 800-meter stage, Lincoln, for some reason, ran from nearly third last to fourth last to, to first. And I, hear, I don't know what was in his mind. And then all the English runners, Boyd, Houston, Woods, they all, because the English ran a sort of a tactical, always up towards the front, always tactically skilled, they all tagged after him. I think Boyd nearly went, nearly took second place. Houston was there, Woods was there, all the British were there. Meanwhile, we're at the back. We're still only 10 yards behind. So when we get to the bell, the bell was so exciting for the bell ringer that if he got to ring the bell. <laughs> and by this wow. stage, we had bunched into uh, six metres. So the field was, if you look at the film, the field was packed into about six metre space. The leaders all nicely spaced out, some running inside lane. I was more or less in the inside lane, which I'm going to have to get out of. But uh, at the bell, Landy began to move. I knew now the race was on. And I waited going down the back stretch. And I'd say it was about 200 or 190 metres. I, I, as we do in the vernacular of Ireland, I put the boot down. I flew by my opponents. I flew by Landy. I wasn't able to flow by um, Houston because he was too far ahead. He was maybe five meters ahead. But around the last band, I'm flying. The flying Irishman, the flying Dutchman, I'm the flying Irishman. And coming into straight, I go by Houston. I'm racing. 
I'm confident, I'm positive, I'm powerful. I go down the street and I know I'm not going to be past. You don't get past when you're, and the experience I had of racing, you're not going to be in past. So I knew I was on my way to winning. What I didn't celebrate, I was about five meters from the line when I throw my arms out in wild ex- exultation and joy. I burst through the tape. I'm an Olympic champion. You can't believe it. You, you wanted to win. You believed you could win. You said about winning. And now you have won. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. So my instinct <laughs> immediately was to kneel and say a prayer in front of the world, in front of 100,000 people in the stadium, say a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank my creator. Thank God for the ability he gave me. And in thanking him, I thanked everyone who on my knees said my prayer of thanksgiving, but I was conscious of the support mechanisms I had around me, which I mentioned earlier in this interview. I was so proud to have won for Ireland. I was so proud uh, that I'd won for my mummy and my daddy and my family. Did you feel that weight of expectation on your shoulders, uh, Ronnie? Because you're obviously somebody, you know, uh, as all great athletes... No, I had no weight of expectation. You go into a different mode then. I'm 21 years of age. I'm a very young man. The new mode was Ronnie Delaney, the Olympic champion. The new mode was to go in and meet the world press. I was well used to being interviewed. I was well used to being uh, talked about. I was well used to being written about. But now I'm the Olympic champion. Now I have a responsibility to the Olympic movement, I have a responsibility to my country, I have a responsibility to my coach, my mentor, and my university. So I have to don that that new mantle, the mantle of being the world champion, of being the Olympic champion. And this is not something imaginative. This is the reality. And the reality of it is that A.P. McQueenie, who is the only Irish journalist I correct myself, the man called Walsh from Waterford was there at the Olympics. He's the only journalist. A.P. McGuinney and his coverage, he said how composed and how confident and how confident I was in, in, in my first interview before the world press. So I'm very proud of that, very proud that that sort of language was used by A.P. McGuinney, who's an outstanding journalist. The journey home uh, from Shannon sounds like a, an epic, an Olympic epic in itself. Um, uh, once you arrive back in Shannon, the journey home sounded like an Olympic epic, uh, Ronnie. T- tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Well, I, my father and my family, uh, they all met me, the old athletic people, and it was middle of the middle of the night. So I'm, I have lovely pictures on the runway. I think people were let out on the runway. Anyway, there was a motorcade organised to get us all up to Dublin. And brilliantly organised by Captain Theo Ryan and Billy Morton. So it's a motorcade and the Flaherty group loaned the cars. So there were Mercedes cars. I was terribly posh. And I go up, get into this car. But on the way up, we stop off everywhere. We stop off in Limerick and Alderman Russell, who was the mayor, Lord Mayor of Limerick, they meet me in the chambers. I'm frozen at six o'clock in the morning or something. The whole chamber is there. They're all extolling my virtues. I then go into Nina and I meet the family of Bob Chisel. I then go into all these 
different place along the way, schools out in the roads, Nace. I remember going to Nace and Lawlers of Nace and Mr. Dowling being the chairman of the local authority. I remember too much jar being had at Nace and some guy getting up on the floor and saying, look, some local guy, if he'd only trained like the Delaney, he'd have whipped my ass. So then, <laughs> <laughs> then, then, we, then we get to Dublin and Dublin, the streets are covered. Now, my picture of Dublin is a, a depressed Dublin, the Dublin of darkness is December. And all these older ladies and, and gentlemen and young people thronging the streets. And at this stage, I had been moved into a... a um, open-air Mercedes car, and I was sitting up at the back of it, and I think Mr. Moran, the president of the Amateur Athletic Union, was in the um, he was in the front seat, and a guy called Larry Maloney was driving the car, and I was driven onto the, onto the steps of of um, the mansion house, and our first Jewish Lord Mayor, Alderman Briscoe, he received me, a most, most elegant man, most brilliant man, Man, he's the first Jewish Lord Mayor of Dublin, and I remember he subsequently came to Villanova and he was got an honorary degree from Villanova. But he's there, and I get the welcome, and then you have to make the speeches. And then I'm home all that Christmas. I'm enjoying the time with my girlfriend. I'm enjoying the time being honoured by my school, the Olympic people, the athletic people, endless banquets, endless celebration. Mm. And of course, celebrity, the celebrity thing was, was, was different then. Yeah, you know, you, there wasn't as much invasion of your privacy. There wasn't as, there's no television, for example. So, so you had a fair degree of privacy. So I did things like go to dances. I went to the cinema. When I went to cinema, the interesting thing was I got in for nothing. Some guy had, the, the usher recognized me and he'd take me up and I'd get in for free, <laughs> which is lovely. And then uh, that's how simple I was as a man. And then in the course of the film, they'd ask you, would you be kind enough to uh, come down on the stage or would you be kind enough to stand up in the audience? Because they put the lights on and you'd be greeted. So there's all these marvelous sort of celebration. Very, very simple, of course, but very much of the times. And there was no commercialization, like there was no money to run. There was no opportunity for advertising or anything. That was to come later. You were an amateur athlete, and it was an extraordinary sports achievement for a, a country of relative size. Ronnie, can I ask you, Tony O'Reilly said that, that your win in Melbourne, uh, he said it made us all feel that we have achieved something unique, that we could compete against the best in the world. Did you have that sense of it? Yeah, well, Tony, Tony is right. Uh, uh, you need trailblazers. So, uh, you need a lead person. I was, modestly, I was that lead person. What I said when winning was, we Irish can beat the world. And that was a huge statement. I think it gave the country a great lift. I always remember the uh, managing director of Guinness. He was honoring me somewhere or other years later. And he said, they have a funny graph of their sales. They said, they sort of static progressive growth all over the years. But in 1956, there's a huge leap in the graph. Where it jumps off the off the the the, the, the map, 
Your win definitely gave Ireland a new sense of, of confidence and uh, as it kind of as it, as it modernized in the 1950s. Can I ask you in some ways your Olympic win has eclipsed some of your other extraordinary achievements in America? Uh, because you went uh, on the indoor circuit, you went some un- 34 races unbeaten uh, and you broke three world records in the process. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that was, that was very straightforward. Uh, it was quite exciting. I never ran indoors. The first time I grew up to Boston, Boston Garden, and I'm running my first indoor race and I win. And I'm now on my way to, to a great sequence of wins in America. I lost... Uh, one or two races, I think, in the course of the first five. But then after that, I never lost indoors again. So for five years, I ran, I think, 43 races. I never lost any. And I ran 33 miles. So I loved that. And that was quite, that was like theatre. Eamon Cochran was my successor, as a, and many other Irishmen successful as milers indoors. Eamon was chairman of the board. So Eamon and I, I think it was like theatre in the round. And our background in Ireland, our education, our love of theatre. The indoors is like theatre in the round. They, before you, when you were being introduced, a spotlight was put on you. They put a green spotlight on me, of course. They had a band which played music uh, as you ran around. So in the first five or six laps of the indoor arena, they'd be playing when Irish eyes are smiling. And then when the race began, they'd play, when Irish eyes are smiling, when Irish <laughs> So that, that was the aura. And the people wore, the officials wore dress suits. And the people, it was a social event. The Wanna Make a Mile was one of the big social events in New York. So you filled the arenas of Chicago, Madison Square Garden, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, Cleveland, Milwaukee. I travelled to all these venues and I was never beaten after my first one or two defeats early on. So that 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 was a lovely, that's a lovely part of my legacy as well. It's not well covered uh, historically because no one sent a journalist to to watch me. There was no television coverage, and the only thing we got was a bit of AP or United Press. Column saying Delaney wins 29th race, Delaney wins 40th race, what have you. So there you go. And can I ask you, by the way, Ronnie, just finally, you decided to move back uh, to Ireland uh, after Villanova, and uh, I know you retired from from athletics around 62. Was it difficult uh, letting go uh, of retirement, going into retirement? No, no, no difficulty. There was one phase of my life. My motivation for retiring was that I was suffering in injuries. I sympathize with a contemporary athlete who has multiple injuries. I had multiple Achilles tendon injuries. It's getting more and more difficult. I've still ranked fourth in the world. At 800 meters the year I retired. So I was still a great athlete. I won the World University Championship the year I retired or the year before I retired. So I was still a great athlete. But I had no, no difficulty with the transition. The most important thing I did was I met Joan and we got married, and that was the beginning of a new phase of life. Um, I think the day I got engaged to Joan, I announced my retirement. It was not great, great PR stuff for a guy. <laughs> and then, career-wise, being the athlete wasn't greatly helpful. There was, 
the immensity of your achievement, uh, you, you got promoted, but you got promoted into non... Uh, I worked for a lingus great company to learn in, but I was given sort of what you'd call uh, non-portfolio promotions. I promoted every year, it's more every couple of months. I got more money, I got a car, but I wasn't getting any uh, portfolio, anything to manage. I was being treated as the celebrity, the guy to get into the picture out at the airport, the guy meeting Jesse Owens, the guy seeing the Male Men's Association off to New York on a charter flight, which I told them. So that, that was that, that was that. So I knew that I couldn't, I had to make a dynamic change again. The three changes I made in my life, cadets, scholarship in America, now leaving Aer Lingus, a huge decision to leave Aer Lingus. And I joined the, uh, emerging BNI line, which had just been bought by the state, a great chairman, Liam St. John Devlin, a great assistant chief executive, Jerry Harvey, went on to be head of Unpuff. I joined there. I joined there for less money, and, but for a position of responsibility. I was, joined them as group sales manager. And I knew this was a decision I had to take to be accepted as the businessman. And from then on, it's Ronnie Delaney, not the Ronnie, but Ronnie Delaney, the great runner, but also the competent businessman, and that was my career thereafter. But then I wasn't terribly driven by money, which is a great thing. So but that enabled me to be helpful to things like Friends of the Elderly, which I love supporting. May Binchy used to be their voice until she passed on, and then they invited me, and I, I loved doing that. The Irish Thoracic Society, the Long Health Alliance, I loved that. Deborah, the, the awful cancer people, I love doing that. I have all these wonderful subliminal charities and things I can do, and I think I can make a contribution. I think that article in the Times is Ronnie Delaney contributing to the wider picture of article in the Times today, because what I'm saying is to the larger public, there's nothing scary about this injection. I think, I think, not you've been told, but I think it's important that we have this COVID. I think this COVID will help us get out of these very, very difficult times. So I was enabled to do that. The president on Gashka Awards, the endless sort of things I did in my career. Uh, oh, I, I should have mentioned, of course, I'm president of the Irish Olympians Association, and I enjoy a lovely relationship with the Olympic Federation of, of Ireland, who are very supportive of the performance of the Olympics and very supportive of me. So that's that's the non begrudgery uh, of Ronnie Delaney. That's the, the gift of Ronnie Delaney, who had this wonderful life, um, who was so grateful to his family his loved ones, his loved friends, for enabling him to enjoy his life to such a full extent. Well, uh, Ronnie, they're, they're lovely sentiments. Uh, and uh, I think, um, you know, you've brought us full circle uh, in your life. Uh, I must say you're a thoroughly decent uh, man. Uh, you're lovely to talk to. Uh, and I'm always fascinated, a bit like John Giles as well, with guys like you who are both very, very nice people, really, and also will beat the hell out of you on the sports field. I love that. I love that combo. Gary, Gary, you might like me saying this, but I loved a match. I loved 
and I miss him. And let's get let's get back to the Irish team having joy about it. Let's get back to the Lord rest his soul, Bill Hurley. Let's get back to the Gary Cook, Johnny Giles uh, <laughs> era of Apre match. And that was Ronnie Delaney. And what a force of nature, and what a story. I'm sure you'll agree. He was a trailblazer for Ireland, our first truly global sporting superstar. And what strikes me is the warmth, the decency, the fellowship of his fellow competitors, and the love of his family and the wider community. A man who aimed for the stars and succeeded, and came back to earth with a grace and a wonderful humanity. A great Olympian and a wonderful person, Ronnie Delaney, thank you very much. Today's Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy. Thank you.